Hey, hey, welcome to the first episode of Angular Master Podcast. Today, my and your guest is the excellent personality in the Angular world, Manfred Steyer. Manfred, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start. Can you tell us something about yourself, like who you are and what do you do? I'm Manfred Steyer. I'm a trainer and consultant for Angular. I'm helping a lot of companies with enterprise scale Angular. For this, I'm doing workshops and consultancy. And uh, besides this, I'm also part of the Google Developer Expert Program, and I'm a trusted collaborator for Angular. Okay, that's perfect. <clears throat> What made you um, choose the path uh, of a programmer? Yeah, that's a good question. So, first of all, my parents sent me to business school because they told me, Manfred, you are that clumsy. You are not capable of doing technical things. And then I had to go through the school. It was a special type of high school. It lasted for five years. And uh, in this time, I had a lot of time to look into other stuff. And so I tried to learn programming and I really loved it. And this was what I did after school. Uh, I started as a web developer uh, using back then ASP.NET in the Microsoft environment and SQL Server. This is how everything began. That is very funny because my path is, is identical like your. I was in a business school, at a banking school, And after school, I just self-learned programming and I start with the Microsoft technology and ASP and then ASP.NET. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Why it's the same path. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, if you had to choose a different profession, what would it be? Well, before I was into programming, I really liked science. I liked biology and I also liked and still like history. So perhaps I would have studied something like this. Uh, I don't think that I would uh, have ended up in a bank otherwise. This was the career path my parents had in mind for me. Uh, making sure the boy ends up in a bank. But I think I would not be that happy there. So, yeah, I think science, history, biology. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, do you think that software rules the world? Yeah, yeah, I think so. At least software can be some kind of kingmaker because software is sometimes the only way to differentiate us from competitors. Uh, it helps us to make processes more efficient, uh, to accelerate them, to make things more cheap, or to increase the experience for the customers. And so, yeah, I think uh, software can really rule the world. It can be a kingmaker. Of course, there are other disciplines that are also important. Yeah. Why you choose Angular? Well, the thing is, I'm doing web development since the late 90s. And for a quite amount of time, the focus was on the backend. 
it was not usual to do that much in the front end. I always was uh, a fan of JavaScript when I had to learn HTML. HTML was okay-ish, CSS was okay-ish, but I really loved JavaScript from the first day. Uh, the first day for me was somewhere in the late 90s where Internet Explorer 4 was a big thing and where the term dynamic HTML, which was HTML and JavaScript, was a big thing. So for some reason, I could not use those things for quite a long time. I still remember sometimes a customer refused final payment because we did a bit too much JavaScript. So they demanded us to take the JavaScript code out of their website. But then I realized it was about 2010, 2012, that more and more happens in the client, in the browser. This was also the time where uh, the iPhone became famous and where we all thought about how can we implement an application that runs everywhere. And then I thought, well, this is exactly my time now. This is the time I'm waiting for, for over 10 years. And yeah, so I did the switch to, to JavaScript. Of course, first of all, I started with jQuery. I used my existing jQuery knowledge. I used, uh, how was it called? Knockout. It was shipped with Visual Studio in the .NET and Microsoft yeah. environment for quite a time. But then I realized that I need a more integrated solution for business applications. And so I found out that Angular is a good deal here. Because Angular, already back then it was Angular Jazz, provided everything one needed, like form support and dependency injection, HTTP support, the router, and so on and so forth. And yeah, this is how... I landed in the Angular world. Uh, okay. Uh, you wrote uh, a lot of books. And yeah, I was quite motivated for uh, Yeah, time. so what motivates you? That's the question. Yeah, so I think I can only be motivated in an intrinsic way. You cannot motivate me extrinsically. Um, I mean, in our um, environment as a software developer, we are lucky because we always earn enough for a living. So I have everything I need. And that's why I'm really focusing on stuff that motivates me intrinsically. I want to do stuff I really like to do. And currently, this is Angular. Currently, this is doing workshops. Currently, this is doing consultancy. I'm always saying I'm a bit like a strewning dog. I'm just doing what I like to do. And uh, perhaps because I have the luxury of just doing what I like to do, I'm doing it quite well, I, I guess. At least not too bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um I want to ask you about the, the lockdown. Now mm. we have the, the COVID situation. How did the lockdown period affect uh, the training industry in your environment? Yeah, so in my very case, 
I don't see a big difference. I mean, we managed to adopt our processes in about one or two days. We did several experiments with different remote technologies. I thought about how to transfer my didactics to something that's web-based. For me, it's important to do more than just speaking. I always say, ideally, a trainer speaks very little and the rest of the time, the trainer creates an environment where the people can try something out, ask questions, start discussions, do exercises. And so I did some experiments about how to transfer these didactics to uh, remote and it turned out to work very well. Um, I uh, use Zoom, I use breakout sessions, I use virtual whiteboards. Drawing is very important for me because if someone sees how a picture is created, this is very valuable for the learning process. Don't just give them the final picture, show them how the picture is created. I'm doing a lot of live coding, polls and so on. So in, in, in my case, it is not that a big uh, issue. And also people seem to like these new didactics and people are still booking my Angular trainings now as remote trainings. Okay. And what do you think, um, what is worth to learn in uh, 2021? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, meanwhile, before we learn something, we need to evaluate what is really uh, a good thing to be learned because not everything is worth to be learned. And what's worth to be learned really um, has to do with your current situation. But in general, if you have all the knowledge you need for your job, what I would recommend is to learn some concepts. Learn what Angular is doing underneath the covers, how Angular is doing change detection, compare it with other frameworks, learn the concepts. Because here is the thing. The good thing is concepts are here to stay. Technologies are not here to stay. Technologies, especially in the area of software development, are coming and going. Of course, Every one of us is hoping that Angular sticks for quite a long time. But honestly, after 10 years, after 15 years, after 20 years, we will have new technologies. And so it's the concepts that will stick. And that's why if you don't want to start over time and time again, look into those concepts. Yeah. It's my recommendation, yeah. my, my two cents. Yeah, that's, that's a great recommendation. I really like it. Uh, is there someone like a perfect programmer? Well, I don't like to think into terms like perfect, but obviously there are programmers that are a bit more experienced or, or that do their job a bit better than others. But I think that's the case in each and every environment. Perhaps it has something to do with passion, Perhaps it has something to do with uh, talent. But the thing is, and I think it's really important, in our industry, about, let's say, 30 years ago, only geeks worked. 
gigs with a very focus, with less social life. They just focused on programming. And nowadays, and I think that's really good, is that more and more normal people, I hope you understand what I mean. Yeah, I don't yeah, want exactly. to be impolite, but no, more and more normal people are entering the the industry. It uh, is not necessary to be a geek anymore that works for 20 hours a day on his or her unique shell. And, and I think that's good because this brings a lot of diversity. Yeah. And uh, what, what would you recommend to young adepts of programming? Yeah, so perhaps one more time, focus on the concepts. And another thing is, if I look back to my early days of programming, also have a look at the process because software development never happens in isolation. There is always a process around it. There is requirements, there is architecture, there is quality assurance. So it does not harm to have a sound understanding for this. And also, if I look back to my early days, be careful that you are not stuck into a local optimum. I had this issue for some years. I was in a local optimum. I thought I'm the hero, but I was only the hero in a very, very small area. And I did not know about everything on the left and on the right side. And It so, is impossible. Yeah, perhaps have a broader view and don't get stuck in this local optimum like I did. Yeah, it's impossible to know everything in every yeah. area. It's Yeah, that, that, that's impossible. But knowing that there is a lot of other stuff out there uh, makes life a bit easier for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so uh, is a programmer a profession for life? I think yes, if people are not burned out. And unfortunately, in my opinion, in our industry, a lot of people are burned out. I burned myself a bit out because I was that motivated. I studied part-time and I had a full-time job. And after 10 years, I said, hey, I want to do something else. I want to quit project business. We did a lot of projects, one after the other one. And this was why I started to do consultancy and trainings. But I think in general, if people are not burned out, If people keep their passion for um, for the job, then yeah, it's it's a job for for a whole life. On the same side, perhaps reinventing ourselves is important over time because this keeps things interesting. So perhaps you want to switch from the client side to the server side or do something else for an amount of time, machine learning, reinventing yourself, if you like it, uh, can be motivating and refreshing. Yeah, exactly. That's totally true. And the key word is, uh, is passion. If you yeah, have passion, yeah. uh, it's, it's for you, for life. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Angular. And uh, what is your role in a core team? 
Sorry, my role in in, in core team. Uh, in the core team. Uh, so the thing is, I'm a so-called trusted collaborator. That means I'm a bit more than an open source contributor. Uh, I have a direct connection to the Angular team. I'm in the Slack channel of them. And uh, I'm discussing with them several issues. For instance, I discussed with them differential loading and I implemented differential loading for the CLI. So it's a bit more than a regular contributor, not that anonymous. Okay. Yeah, and I did stuff for the CLI. As mentioned, I implemented, implemented differential loading. I implemented some stuff for server-side rendering, this dev server that is doing auto-reloads now since some versions was was my work. And currently, I'm doing open source. I'm implementing a bridge solution between the Angular CLI and Module Federation because the Angular team decided to not implement it for the time being at least not in short term, they have other priorities. But uh, yeah, it's it's like a Batman, Jim Gordon situation, you know. Batman is allowed to do things Jim Gordon is not allowed to do because Jim Gordon has to align with the law. Batman does not have to align with the law. And so I can create this bridge solution, discuss with them and uh, improve it so that the amount of people that want to use module federation can do it already today with okay a great comparison <laughs> <laughs> uh, what we can expect in the latest version yeah so um, if you look at angular since version 9 then you see that not that much happened since version 9 of course there have been a lot of features if you look at the pull request, but there was not such a huge thing like Ivy that arrived in version 9. Since version 9, the Angular team focused on tooling. They focused on internal refactoring and uh, they focused on tiny improvements. Uh, one thing that is such a tiny improvement in the tooling is uh, script inlining. They already started this with version 11 and they improved it for version 12. So the keyword here is critical path rendering, which is vital for a good uh, performance using Lighthouse and all the other stuff Google uses to measure the performance of your website. Another thing, and I think this will really make our life easier, is uh, the Angular team will come up with a very, very sound debugging solution. Perhaps you remember Augury. Augury was really great. Then they introduced Ivy, and Augury lost some features because it was a bit difficult to re-implement them for Ivy. But this is now done. And they are doing even a better job than with Augury. They are including features like having a look at the memory pressure of your application, having a look at the performance of your application. And of course, all the stuff we already know from Augury from the old days. And by the way, 
I've already seen it. I've got uh, an early preview. It really, really looks great. Another thing, and this closes the cycle for me, is the Angular CLI is now using Webpack 5. And that's really important for me because Webpack 5 comes with module federation. And module federation is, for me, one of the core technologies for micro frontends. Okay, if we talk about micro frontends, what does the term mean? Yeah, good question. So it's as that often the idea is quite old, but the term is quite new. The idea is just to write several tiny applications instead of one big application. And most people do this to be capable of scaling their team. They want to have sub-teams working independently on one tiny application. That means all the teams don't need to coordinate that much. They can do their own decisions, which is also in the sense of um, agile development, doing decisions locally because programmers in the team have more knowledge than the project lead most of the time because they are really into this topic. And so, yeah, this allows them to do the decisions locally. And this shall make the whole process a bit more flexible. That's the idea of micro frontends. Of course, one of the challenges is if you have, let's say, 20 tiny micro frontends, somehow you need to integrate them. You need to load them in one single page application so that the user thinks that he or she is working with one integrated solution. And this is where module federation comes in. It allows to load separately compiled, separately deployed code at runtime. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So uh, what do you think? What character what characterizes the correct front-end architecture? Well, I think there is not the one and only correct micro front-end or in general front-end architecture. Um, I, did a, I did a metaphor some time ago. I remembered when I was 16, you know, with 16, you are allowed to drive a moped. And when I went to school, we discussed a lot what's better, a moped or a scooter. Some people were into the scooter area and some people were into the moped area. And for some reason, scooter people did not like moped people that much and vice versa. I don't know why, but it, it was a big thing for differentiate yourself in the age of 16. And we discussed a lot, what's better, a moped or a scooter? And at the end of the day, the discussion does not make sense. And I think the same about the perfect architecture, as there is not the perfect car, the perfect vehicle, the perfect moped or scooter, there is not the perfect architecture. But there is one thing, namely a nicely fitting architecture for your current needs. And that means... At the beginning, you need to know your needs, your architectural goals. 
You can find them out by looking at your requirements. Some of them are shaping your architecture. And if you look at quality attributes. And if you know your architectural goals, if you bring them in an order, that's very important. You need to know what is more important. If I need to skip one of those three things, why is it this one and not that one? You need to bring it in an order. You have to have uh, priorities. And then you can think about which architectural candidates uh, fit more and fit less according to those goals. And perhaps you identify one or two candidates And this is always about dealing with trade-offs because each and every candidate will have advantages and disadvantages. And I always say you have to find out the candidate that brings more advantages than disadvantages. Let's put it in, in a very abstract way. Okay, okay. So next question is about a version mismatch hell. How can I get rid of? Yeah, Yeah, that's a funny thing, especially if you think on micro frontends. Yeah. Because when going with micro frontends, when integrating your frontends uh, into a shell, you are turning compile time dependencies into runtime dependencies. And you cannot really predict what will happen at runtime. Perhaps those parts that are loaded at runtime work with each other without issues, or perhaps they have a big issue in terms of version mismatches. One part is using Angular 11, one part is using Angular 12. And yeah, so somehow you need to be prepared for this. At first, you need to have, of course, some sound integration tests to find out quickly if you broke something. And you can only find out with integration tests because you don't have compile time dependencies anymore. There are runtime dependencies now. Uh, besides this, module federation brings several strategies for dealing with those version mismatches. And I think it's really clever. Uh, they have really clever strategies. The default strategy is seeking for a highest compatible version. So let's say one part is using Angular 10, the other part is using Angular 10.1. The highest compatible version is 10.1. And so module federation will only load 10.1 at runtime because it assumes that 10.1 is backwards compatible to 10. On the other side, if you had version 11 and 12, then there is not a highest compatible version because, you know, according to semantic versioning, a new major can introduce a breaking change. And by default, module federation is loading both of them, 11 and 12, which is a disaster for Angular. It's okay-ish for something like Lodash or RxJS or in general for a stateless library. Because one part of your application does not care if the other part is using the same or another version of Lodash. Okay, it increases the bundle size, but it should be all. But when it comes to having two versions of Angular in the same browser window, this can lead, this will for sure lead to issues because Angular is not 
created for living side by side with another version of itself. And Angular is also stateful. That means one Angular instance knows three components, the other one knows three components too. And the three components from the one side don't know about the three components of the other side. They live in different universes. They live in different Angular instances. So this is something you really want to prevent, besides all the other issues that come up when having several Angular versions loaded into the same browser window. So if you can avoid this situation, please avoid it. If you cannot avoid this situation, then you can combine module federation with web components. The nice thing is a web component can hide implementation details. It implements a browser API and it hides implementation details. That means the caller of the web component does not know and is not even interested into the technology the web component has been written by. And yeah, so using web components, Angular elements, you can uh, share or yeah, use different technologies side by side, different versions. And if you combine it with module federation, you can also share libraries if you happen to have two web components using the same Angular version or the same NGRX version or something like this. Okay. And besides this, there are even other strategies you can configure in yeah. module federation. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is the easiest way to visualize architecture, our architecture? Yeah, so what I like to get a first overview is the dependency graph provided by NX. It gives you a nice overview about your applications, about your libraries, and, and I think that's the most important one, about the interconnections between them. So you see quickly that everyone is talking to everything else, and that's why you cannot change a thing without breaking everything else in your application. That's, that's good for getting an overview. Um, what's also nice with NX dependency graphs is that you can show and hide different parts of your libraries and applications. Someone said once, a model is valuable if and only if it is incomplete. If a model tries to show you the whole world, think about a street map that also knows about the railways and that also knows about the routes for your airplanes and that also knows about your energy cables and about your water pipes. Uh, it, it would be too much. And it's, it's the same with a dependency graph. So it's really good to be capable of just having a look at a specific part. Besides this, I like to use source code because source code always tells the truth. Documentation can be outdated, but source code is always honest. And for this, I like to jump across the source code using F12 in Studio Code and so on. And I like simple block charts that are showing in which parts your architecture is subdivided. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, 
How should we categorize libraries? Yeah, so the NX team come up with a very clever idea. And this idea uh, reminded me on domain-driven design, which is about 20 years old, but the book is still a bestseller. I mean, you need to accomplish something like this, writing a book about software development that is about 20 years later still a bestseller. That shows that people seem to like it and people seem to find it valuable. And according to those ideas, you create at least a matrix. That means you slice your application vertically into business domains that are parts of your business that can work more or less independently. The less they need to know about each other, the better it is because at the end of the day, you want to change one business domain without influencing other business domains too much. Uh, and then they also create layers. I am calling those my horizontal subdivisions. That means each and every domain has several layers. And using both of them, they define access restrictions. This is a way to configure the linter when going with an X. You can tell the linter if some part of this domain is accessing some part of that domain, you should get an error because this is not allowed. Those two parts are not directly allowed to talk with each other because we don't want to couple everything to everything else. Or you can define access restrictions on top of your layers. And yeah, using this, you don't have broken windows anymore because you find out quite quickly uh, when your architecture gets broken. Uh, sometimes you break it by incident because of using auto-imports. I really love auto-imports and I think I could not live without them. But sometimes an auto-import is uh, creating coupling. You don't want to couple, but yeah, the import is generated and immediately you depend upon another part of your application. Yeah. And what are the best practices for creating Angular architecture in projects built from scratch? Yeah, so one thing I really like is domain slicing, as mentioned before, because it creates parts of your application that don't need that much about other parts. And so you can evolve your software a bit easier. Uh, on the other side, um, if you go with a full flag domain-driven design in the front end, uh, your project should be a bit bigger. If this is just a three-month project uh, two people are working on, then I would just use folders and Angular modules. If you say, hey, we have several developers for several years, then think about an NX monorepo, then think about using a fully flag domain-driven design where your slices and layers are defined using separate libraries that can be compiled in isolation, that can uh, use those access restrictions. And if you say you need to scale your team, 
because you have one and more teams and you want to work them independently, then think on splitting everything into separate micro frontends. This is my, my general recommendation. Of course, at the end of the day, it always depends on your very situation. But as a rule of thumb, I think those three, perhaps I shouldn't call it steps of evolution, but those three flavors uh, can be a good starting point. Yeah, it sounds really another, good. Another thing is um, sometimes state management is very valuable for you. Think on NGRX. Sometimes it is just an overkill. And you have this in a lot of other situations too. Sometimes you don't know if it is valuable or an overkill, if it will help you or if it will lead to over-engineering. And in this case, I like to go with an agile approach. Start with the simplest solution possible, plus make sure that you can refactor a bit later easily. The second part is important because without the second part, Uh, you have a naive approach. But if you make sure you can refactor a bit later quite easy, if you can squeeze in NGRX behind the facade, for instance, or introduce other technologies behind the facade, then you should be on the safe side. Then you prevent both under-engineering and over-engineering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That sounds, that sounds really good. Um, the next question is, What goals should a good architect set to her or himself? Yeah, so the thing is, originally the architect was just a person that dealt with technical aspects. But I think meanwhile, an architect needs to have some additional capabilities. Because, yeah, of course... Designing the overall architecture is one part, but the architect is not a dictator anymore. And he is not someone who tells the people what to do. No, an architect should be a moderator. An architect should talk to people. An architect should program a bit to find out where are the pain points in the architecture. An architect needs to have communication skills because he has to communicate with the programmers, with the senior and junior developers to find out about pain points, about uh, where they have their, their strengths, what they can do in a good way. Uh, they also need to communicate with business in order to find out which architecture can serve the business goals. And he needs to resolve conflicts, personal conflicts, technical conflicts. He needs to communicate the architecture. Uh, very often the architect is also responsible for automating processes in the team, CI-wise and also with other means. So meanwhile, an architect needs to have a huge skill set. And yeah, that makes it interesting, but this can also make it a bit exhausting. Yeah, technical skills and soft skills. Yeah, it's, it's about a very combination of both of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, let's talk for a moment about your latest video course. Um, mm -hmm. What can students expect? Yeah, so it is more or less 
everything you need to know to create a macro architecture for your application. I mean, every one of us, meanwhile, knows how to use modules and folders for structuring an application because this is part of each and every tutorial. And most tutorials and books stop there, and this is where the course is starting. In the course, we are assuming that we have an application that is that big, several developers, several years, that folders and modules are not enough. And that's why we are looking into domain-driven design. That's why we are looking into an X and into a lot of features and X spring to help with enterprise scale applications. And we also look into micro frontends with uh, module federation and other techniques like web components. We also do some bridging to other topics. We build a bridge to the security topic uh, because security, especially authentication and authorization, needs to be baked in into your architecture. It brings several challenges. The more your application is, um, is distributed amongst different parts, the more difficult it becomes. And we look into integrating NGRX into your architecture. This is an option. We start without NGRX. We do some things that allow us to switch to NGRX, and then we will show how to switch to it, how to integrate it into our overall architecture, and how to use advanced things like uh, normalization, converting a general purpose structure into a few model structure, things like this. Yeah. That's it's all about domain slicing because this is the leading theory of creating tiny parts that don't need to know much about each other. So it's also about strategic design and domain-driven design. Yeah. How this video course is different from your classroom or, or online training? Yeah, so I think for some people it is the better option because it allows you to learn in an asynchronous way. You don't have to be there between nine and five in the afternoon and listen to the instructor and doing labs. No, you can watch the recordings. You can go back if you didn't understand something or you can skip parts if you already know it. And I assume this is very often the situation, especially when it comes to adult education. When it comes to child education, you can assume that most of the children in your classroom have the same pre-existing knowledge. In the first class, perhaps some of them know some letters, but they are not capable of writing sentences. But when it comes to adult education, then you have different uh, pre-existing knowledge. And so skipping parts is quite nice, if you ask me, or also redoing parts if you are not that confident with a given topic. But on the other side, just doing it in an asynchronous way is too little because you have questions and sometimes we only grow and learn if we can discuss our ideas 
perhaps even in the context of our current project. And that's why we are doing office hours. We are meeting several times in the evening. And uh, this is where we can discuss questions, answer questions, discuss project situations. So I think you get the best out of both worlds. Besides this, because it's asynchronous, it's a bit more inexpensive, and yeah, you are more flexible in terms of time and the timetable. What should I know before starting this course? Well, I think you should know Angular in general. That means you should be capable of writing a simple CRUD application. This is our starting point. We start with a simple CRUD application that loads some data from the backend, and then we refactor it into several flavors of architectures for huge enterprise scale Angular solutions. Uh, yeah, so if you know how to create a CRUD application, it should be fine. If you are not that confident, you can look into the Tours of Heroes tutorial to get a sound understanding of those basic concepts. Yeah. By the way, everyone can uh, find this course on the website angularmaster.dev. One more time, angularmaster.dev. Okay, so uh, finally, tell me, what book are you currently reading? Yeah, good question. So currently, I'm not reading a specific book, but my last book, I think it was last year, most of the times I'm reading source code of the Angular team and blog articles, but my last book was last year and it was called Mathematics for Programmers. And for this, you have to know, I'm really bad when it comes to mathematics. But no. on the other side, I like to know about concepts. And I read this book to find out how to write a 3D engine from the scratch. And yeah, it was not that easy for me. I had to re-read several chapters and I had to look up additional stuff on the web. YouTube is a nice source. And then I wrote my 3D engine that is just using Canvas 2D. So at the end of the day, it draws a lot of, uh, not rectangles, triangles. And so you see different 3D shapes like a cow or a can. I can even import a 3D file format, which is text-based and describes all the vectors. It was not that easy for me. But on the other day, or the, on, on the other side, it was really a good feeling when it finally worked and when I finally find out why this mathematic is working. Uh, I, I really grasp it because I had to apply this kind of mathematics. I have to check it. It sounds really interesting. Next question is about your favorite movie and why is it Star Trek? <laughs> Very nice, yeah. Yeah, indeed, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I'm also a huge Batman fan. Somehow, not much changed since I was 12 years old. I'm doing programming. I'm watching Star Trek. I'm watching Batman. And then I'm starting over again, more or less. But yeah, I'm, I'm really into Star Trek. I, 
I like the science fiction aspect and I like that it is not that much of a fantasy thing. So it is more on the science fiction side and less on the fantasy side. And I also like the positivity it brings, the positive outlook to a possible future. Um, yeah. So I think when it comes to Star Trek, what I really liked was the first season of Star Trek Picard. I was a huge fan of Star Trek Deep Space Nine because it was a bit darker. I also like this, this uh, dark environment. That's why I also like Batman. And movie-wise, I think I'm one of the less people that really like the reboot, the reboot. Uh, done by J.J. Abrams. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I started to to watch um, Star Trek with my daughter. She's a big fan of this movie, so oh, we just uh, we just start to watch this um, '80s version. Yeah, the Star Trek from the '80s. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. If, so, uh, no, uh, DNG, the Next Generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it's really, really, really cool. So it's very, very funny to watch it with my nine years daughter, and she's so excited and everything. Yeah, so that's that's mm -hmm. really cool. I'm also a big fan of the Next Generation. They had a a lot of good storylines, a lot of good writing. Yeah. Manfred, what would you like our listeners to remember from today's conversation? Boy. This is the so, last question. Yeah. So perhaps one thing is because I mentioned it several times, if I'm allowed to give my two cents, if someone asks me, uh, what shall I do? Then I would say, look at concepts because they are here to stay. Uh, technologies change. Concepts are here to stay. Uh, yeah, perhaps that's it. And yeah. There is not a perfect architecture because we also talked a lot of architecture. Uh, there is also a more and a less fitting architectural candidate for a given issue, for a given project. And to find out what is more or less beneficial or fitting, you need to know your architectural goals. You need to bring them in an order, which is sometimes quite difficult because sometimes this is not known, but then you can evaluate your candidates. Those yeah. are my, my hashtag two cents. Manfred, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope to see you soon in person. And same way. Yeah, all the best, my friend. Yeah, same way. All the best. Thanks for having me. <laughs>